Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of PASFML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, PAK, and on today's episode, I am going to be introducing a brand new segment, so hot off the press, never before been done for you guys. Uh, it's a new segment, and it's going to be extra awesome because I have some sweet, sweet panic studying woven into my random blathering and patient story. So let's get going. So I want to tell a few stories in order to introduce a brand new segment that I'm going to be calling physical exam for the win. And basically, this segment is going to be me sharing real life patient stories, where the patient came in and gave a chief complaint, or maybe didn't give a chief complaint at all, that led me down a certain direction of differential diagnoses. And then when I got to the physical exam, I was blown away by something that I found and that totally changed management and changed the course of the rest of the session and treatment. Uh, well, that's exactly what changes management means. So uh, this is a way for us to remind us all about um, typical or just medicine, um, some medicine topics in general, um, and also fun stories. And finally, to remind us uh, that a big, the big saying of trust but verify is true, right? Patients come in and not all of them are trained in medicine. Surprise, surprise. And so things that they might be highlighting in terms of their symptoms or chronology of their symptoms, they may be highlighting different things that are important to them, but we need to be listening more carefully to the things that are actually more pertinent or might change the story or the picture a little bit more. So trust, but verify and physical exam is a really important way to do that. So uh, the first story actually isn't even my story. So full disclosure, not my story. I'm just going to tell it by the way that I remember it having been told to me. Uh, and this story is from my boyfriend, who is an internal medicine hospitalist. Um, so he works at a big hospital. And this happened to him kind of early into his career, like within the first year that he was out and practicing on his own. And I only bring that up to remind all of us that it is, of course, daunting to all of a sudden be in charge of human lives. And uh, I mean, I know I'm <laughs> terrified about killing someone, um, terrified about missing something. And I know my program takes its job of training us to be proficient clinicians very seriously. And part of the method to their madness in achieving that goal is being rather relentless about how we perform our physical exams. And they are constantly bearing down on us to perform the physical exam, you know, at the same caliber of proficiency 
every time. Basically, use a methodical approach and do it the same way every single time. And that way you're not going to miss anything. So that's, and that's just kind of how you have to practice when you first start out. So it's, it's good advice and I'm trying to take it, but, um, I guess I'm just highlighting that there's a method in the madness, practice your physical exam skills in the way that you are actually going to do them in real life. Because I will tell you, having been out in the real clinical world right now, the way that I practiced my physical exam skills on my classmates is exactly how I am doing it in real life. If I skipped over something and just kind of talked through it and said, oh yeah, and this is where I would auscultate or percuss the lungs, guess what? By the time I come to that here in the real world, I'm like, oh God, I've not actually gone through the motions of like percussing a lung. I had just completely forgotten um, how to even go through the motions. Um, so super important stuff there. So, okay, there's my tangent, um, physical exam for the win. So the boyfriend, um, it was, was, and is still, um, uh, doing like seven, seven days on and seven days off. So when he comes in for a shift, he gets a whole batch of, um, new patients, some of whom have been in the hospital for, you know, only half a day and the others who've been there for a handful of days. And this particular patient had already been admitted to the hospital for a few days. And his chief complaint was a weak and numb right upper extremity. And the ED had worked him up for suspicion of a stroke and he was admitted because of this stroke. And so boyfriend gets on shift and starts rounding. And like most humans, when you meet another human, walks into the room and introduces himself. And with that came a handshake. So they go to shake hands and he immediately realizes that this patient's hand is ice cold. Not only that, but the patient like grimaced and said, ow, when they shook hands. So it was painful, painful to the touch, painful with a little bit of like light pressure that comes with a normal handshake. And immediately the alarm bells start going off in boyfriend's head. And I'll give you a quick second to think, why would that be? This patient had been admitted for a stroke. And here he is with a super cold upper extremity that is also painful. And any idea why? Well, stroke normally doesn't cause pain like that. Stroke normally doesn't cause a cold upper extremity. What do you think is going on? Well, I use my patronizing tone to try to get us all to use our brains and dig a little deeper for what do you think might be going on? Well, I'll tell you what the boyfriend did, which was the correct answer, turns out. He consulted with vascular surgery because he was concerned for, buzzword, an ischemic limb. So I will remind everyone and myself that the upper extremity has this neat, handy-dandy, um, who uses that word anymore? Where, when was the last time I said handy-dandy? 
Guys, I don't know where these words come from sometimes. They just come out of my mouth. But you know what? I'm going to run with it. Uh, The upper extremity has a neat, handy-dandy vascular system that has collateral circulation. So we have two important arteries that supply blood to the upper extremity, the radial artery and the ulnar artery. So both of those two major highway thoroughfares is how we get blood to the upper extremities, which is super smart, handy dandy, if you will. And it's super rare, but apparently it's happened at least once now that I've heard of uh, that um, a patient can get both of those arteries blocked, blocked and leading to an ischemic limb. So Let's get some sweet, sweet panic studying in. There are the five P's that should be buzzwords for us on what and on what might tell you that you've got an ischemic limb going on. So take a couple seconds. Let's think about those. What are the five P's of an ischemic limb? Mm-hmm. Are you thinking? Okay, good. And actually, I lied to you. There are six P's of an ischemic limb. So here we go. Six P's of an ischemic limb, pain, pallor, pulselessness, paralysis, paresthesia, and the most fun word of all, poikilothermia. I'm not making it up. Poikilothermia, P-O-I-K, poikilothermia stands for the inability to regulate body temperature, i.e. cold. So this patient had, oh, I forgot to mention this patient uh, also had, he actually had three of the six. He had pulselessness because as the boyfriend's standing there holding his hand in the handshake, realizing that it's painful and had poikilothermia, he quickly turned it over and felt for a pulse and there was no pulse because again, this is an ischemic limb here. So, um, so there was no pulse. Uh, so we had three of the six and I'm sure if I had asked, it was probably pale as well because there was no blood flow to it. So I'm sure this guy probably at least had four of the six. So, um, getting vascular surgery was indeed the way to go. Um, and this guy hadn't had a stroke. It was an ischemic limb. So there's story number one for physical exam for the win. Now, my two stories that both of them happened just this week. And not that this matters, but today's only Tuesday. (laughs) So uh, that's what spurred me on to do this segment because I thought it was pretty interesting that I had two back-to-back cases of, man, am I glad that I just did the physical exam the way that I knew how to do any general physical exam. So I had um, a patient come in this week and his... Well, he didn't have a chief complaint. He basically was in for his yearly physical exam um, so that he could continue work um, and had so no acute complaints today. And I looked over the uh, physical ex- physical sheet that we had done for him last year and, you know, everything was normal. So I was like, oh, well, you know, slam dunk. Uh, so we did the eye chart, we took a height and a weight. I mean, really pretty like benign stuff here, but again, physical exam for the win. So I get to the abdominal portion of the exam 
and he is laying there on the table and pulls up his shirt and immediately I notice an abnormality and I must have a good poker face. I mean, I guess I do. Um, because he, he didn't say anything at all. He wasn't like, Oh yeah, let me explain that kind of a thing. He just kind of like pulled the shirt up and like, and, and there I noticed was like this huge protruding Audi belly button. I mean, massively huge. And I'll tell you, it wasn't a massively huge, uh, just an Audi belly button. It was a hernia, right? So we can get hernias in a whole bunch of different places. We can get them in the inguinal canal. We can um, get them just kind of like anywhere along the stomach. And, that, and in that case, they're called ventral um, hernias. Uh, but in this case, he got it in the belly button. So we call that an umbilical hernia. Um, and like I pushed on it a little bit and it was not painful and it didn't plop back into place. So we have a fancy word for that when hernia doesn't go back in when you push on it. Um, and that's called anybody, anybody unreducible, right? So he had a non-reducible, um, umbilical hernia. Uh, and so I asked him like, how long has this been here? And, and he was like, Oh, I mean, you know, about a year. And I was like, well, well, okay. Uh, not painful. Does it ever go away? Does it ever like pop back in? Um, and he was like, no, pretty much just always there. It doesn't cause him any pain. So I talked to my preceptor about my finding and he gave a really good pearl, a clinical pearl that hernias, a lot of times will self reduce if when the patient lays on their back, just because of like the abdominal pressure kind of thing. So the fact that when this patient laid down, I could still see his umbilical hernia was pretty telling. And in fact, the, my preceptor was not surprised that I couldn't manually reduce it because I guess usually if it's going to pop back in, it's definitely going to reduce itself um, when you take away the intra-abdominal pressure by laying on your back. Um, so I uh, talked with the preceptor and just reminding all of us that the way to deal with um, at least umbilical hernias, I think perhaps generally hernias in general, are they basically they need a surgery consult um, because, of course, we are worried about a complication of um, a trapped or jailed or like incarcerated um, part of the either large or small intestines. Um, and of course, if that happens, it cuts off the blood supply to that part that gets twisted and jailed up. Um, and then parts of our body that aren't getting blood supply die easily and things that die become necrotic and things that are necrotic uh, become infected. So um, kind of a huge problem there. And uh, basically when you have a hernia, you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, of course, not that complications happen in everyone, but we fix them so that that horrible thing does not happen to them. So, um, I shared that news with the patient, uh, just generally. And, um, I, I didn't want to scare him, but I, I didn't feel like he was really, <laughs> I didn't feel like he was really caring that he had an umbilical hernia. Um, 
you know, so we'll see. So maybe the next time he's out of his medication and comes back in to see us, I'll, I'll ask him if he's done that, um, surgery, uh, scheduled that surgery yet. So, um, that's uh, story number one. And then the save the best for last, um, this patient came in, uh, another, obviously another patient came in, um, another middle-aged guy, uh, and he had had a two day history of pleuritic chest pain, shortness of breath, um, largely due to the pleuritic chest pain and, um, oh, kind of casually like some left upper, um, left upper quadrant pain. Um, but the patient was quick to kind of say, you know, but it's like the bottom of my lung kind of thing. He kept saying, you know, it's like up here under my ribs. So he was like, you know, it's kind of like lung territory. So, okay. Um, so, you know, in a 40 year old, 40-ish year old guy uh, who's never had a CARDS workup. I mean, I took the most incredible cardiac and pulmonology history that one has ever seen. It was super impressive. Um, and it took like 20 minutes to get this out of this guy because essentially I'm trying to figure out, um, you know, are you having a heart attack? Have you been having a heart attack? Um are you having a PE? Like what, you know, what's going on here? Do I, and I'm in the urgent care setting right now. So I'm basically just trying to figure out if this guy needs to go to the ED. Um, so I'm taking, you know, super thorough, um, take his vitals, which are stable, thankfully. Um, and then same thing. I get to the abdominal exam. I pull this guy's shirt up and away and it looks like he's seven months pregnant. His belly is so distended, so taut, and the poor guy can barely even get comfortable on the exam table there. Just it hurts him to lay flat and he's like wincing in pain. And I didn't want to put him through that much pain. He was so uncomfortable. So I, I tried to make it quick and I just kind of like pushed in a few places and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, left side, like super painful up there. Um, I mean, I tried to push in to see him like, I don't know, your spleen's up there. Is your, do you have like hepatosplenomegaly? But the stomach was so distended that, I mean, there was no going fishing for either one of those two organs. It was just so obvious that I was looking at just a huge ascites belly. Um, so I let the guy sit up right away and I was like, <laughs> you know, nowhere in his history did he tell me, oh yeah. And by the way, uh, I, my pants aren't fitting anymore. Like did not offer any of that. It was just this pleuritic chest pain. Um, and, uh, his shortness of breath because he couldn't take a deep breath in. Um, so no mention that his belly had like doubled in size in two days, uh, or again, that he like couldn't put his pants on. Um, he had like, he had had, um, a very small mention of some off and on constipation. Um, so, you know, left upper quadrant. I'm like, well, you know, he offered, uh, that he does get constipated every now and then. And he was like, I guess it's been about three days since I had even had a bowel movement. So originally I'm thinking, okay, when I do the abdominal exam, definitely need to make sure that I listen for bowel. So oh my God, what is wrong with your belly? Uh, again, I've got a fantastic poker face. Um, and I think I, 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 I kept my cool. Um, but, uh, anyway, was totally not expecting this massive, 
this massive belly in front of me. Um, so we sent him to the ED super quick. Um, so, uh, you know, trust but verify, guys. Use your physical exam skills because even though we think we don't know anything, if we just do what we're taught, trust the process, do what we're taught, you're going to find some crazy shit. Actually, I have one more story. And don't you love it when I just come in and start it with, well, actually, um, I do that all the time. Sorry, but I do have one more story for you. And I think it's worth a share. So this is also the boyfriend story. And it goes like this. He came on shift and there was a patient who had already been in the hospital for two or three days was all. And this was a 16-year-old kid, uh, male, who was, I forget what his chief complaint was. I think it was like fevers and all over just feeling not well. Uh, and the team before my boyfriend came on shift had really didn't have any good ideas about what was going on with him. They'd run a handful of tests and I think maybe even scanned him in various places. And they really couldn't figure out, they really didn't have an idea for why this 16-year-old boy was sick enough to be in the hospital. And so out of kind of sheer frustration with the whole situation, meaning him not being able to help, I mean, right? That's why most of us got into this, right? We, we want to help people. Uh, I mean, I know it's a, I know it's such a lame thing to say because you're not supposed to say that when you go to PA school interviews. Oh, I want to help people. Um, I mean, it, like you can say that, but you need to dive deeper into like, okay, well, like, yeah, everybody likes helping people. It makes us feel good. Why? Why did you choose to do medicine in that way? Right? Because there's a million ways that people can help people. Um, anyway. So the boyfriend was frustrated that he wasn't helping people, and he decides to just do, wouldn't you know it, a physical exam. So his own physical exam, head to toe, head to toe physical exam, and gets down to the genital area and lifts up the gown and sees that, and obviously the kid is awake, right? Totally consenting 16-year-old male here to, to this physical exam, by the way, lifts up the gown and notices that one of this kid's testicles, I think it was the right one, was swollen and larger than the other one. I don't remember how swollen, but it was enough that he could tell without too much palpation that the, one of these testicles in particular was bigger than the other one. And so he asked the kid, how long has that been going on? And I think the answer that came back was something like months, months and months and months. And I mean, we've all been 16. Things are scary. And some there's a lot of things that you don't tell your parents. But uh, unfortunately for this kid, that was the his physical exam finding was something that probably should have been told to an adult. Um, so the concern, of course, with one testicle larger than another in the absence of any acute trauma is concerning for testicular cancer. So they ended up doing, I think it was an ultrasound that they got first, 
Um, but of course you have, you have to do a whole bunch of other things. And, um, I've, I intend to do a podcast later on about, uh, the difference between what, what your first line treatment is and what the gold standard, excuse me, what the first line for like a diagnostic workup is, and then what the gold standard of diagnosing is, because those are two totally different things. And it took me a few months to figure that out when I was in school. So I'm going to share that with you guys. Um, but uh, so anyway, so they, they did the workup and of course it unfortunately came back as testicular cancer and pearl testicular cancer unfortunately has a propensity to spread and especially to the lungs and so right after they diagnosed testicular cancer in this kid they got a chest x-ray and unfortunately it had just it was almost out of control from the way the picture was painted to me of, of how widespread it was into the lungs but the crazy thing that you'd think that with a presentation like that and metastasis widespread into the lungs, you'd think that it, that testicular cancer would have a greater mortality rate. But turns out it's actually one of the more treatable cancers. So again, prevention goes a long way. And um Educate and educating your patient goes a long way. I mean, nobody wants to talk about testicular cancer in the in the exam room if you know if all the if all the sixteen year old kid is trying to do is trying to get a physical so that he can play soccer. I mean, the last thing you want to do is talk about ball cancer. What movie is that from? Uh, oh God, it's with Jay Jason Bateman and Kristen Bell. God and Vince Vaughn. I mean, just a great cast. What is it? And they go. They, and they go to a tropical island. Oh, man, the tropical islands. They go to a tropical island. It's not forgetting Sarah Marshall. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm spacing like this. Couples retreat. Ha! I got it. Couples retreat. Anyway, um, Jason, Jason Bateman's character um, has testicular cancer uh, or had it in the outs, in the beginning of the movie. Um, and that caused him to, like, re-look at his life things. Why am I telling you guys the plot of a movie? Anyway. Um, and, but he calls it ball, he calls it ball cancer. No, Vince Vaughn calls it ball cancer. Jason Bateman is doing the correct thing and calling it testicular cancer and encouraging his friends to go, uh, to go to a provider and get, get checked out just as a prevention. And Vince Vaughn is being a real jerk, um, and keeps calling it ball cancer. Anyway, ball cancer goes to the lungs. Um, so, I know we don't like to do genital exams all the time because they're uncomfortable for the patients, but really and truly, things can things are not always what they seem. A 16-year-old otherwise healthy kid can sometimes have testic testicular cancer, and so physical exam for the win, my friends. All right. And that is our episode for today. So just a quick one here for us all. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. And stay tuned for the next episodes because I'm going to be really starting to focus on some more sweet, sweet panic studying for all of us. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely not done as much studying as I've needed to. So I'm going to start to bring some formal studying in for us um, and also bring in um, some more pearls as I continue on in my clinical journey here. So uh, thanks again for tuning in. See you next time.